the title of today's message is part two of a series that we started last week. The series is called The Walking Dead, and this is what we call episode two, Game of Thrones. We start in Revelation chapter five, verse number one. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open or to read the book, neither to look thereon. What I want you to notice is in verse one, the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Everybody say the throne. What's going on in Revelation chapter 5? And by the way, if you're ever trying to read and understand the book of Revelation, it doesn't actually start until chapter 6. Chapter 5 is where the scroll eventually gets unrolled and the rest of the book is what's written on the front and the back of that scroll. Which, a.k.a., if you're taking notes, a.k.a. was the wrong acronym. By the way, if you're taking notes and you want to understand the book of Revelation a little better... There were three types of scrolls that were available on the earth at that time. A verso, a recto, and an epistograph scroll. And this one is an epistograph scroll, which means it's written on the front and the back, and the front and the back should have a dichotomy to them. The way that came about was actually Christians were a big part of that because there was not a lot of paper like there is now. And so they would find a scroll written by the Romans or the pagans or somebody teaching whatever, and they'd flip it over, and they'd write the Christian testimony on the other side, And they'd use that to transfer messages. So you'd have something adverse to each other. Uh, Hence the the name epistograph means opposing on the two sides. So if you're ever reading the book of Revelation, you're like, it seems like this chapter is really nice and worshipful and full of angels and stuff. And then the next chapter is full of destruction and people dying. And then the next chapter, we're back here and God's doing cool things. And the next chapter, again, everybody's dying. And you're out. You're like, how is this thing put together? Is it chronological? Is it crazy? Do you have to be... The Holy Spirit has to sit down and teach it to you. How can I figure this thing out? Well, we have a a way to show you that, but that's not the message today. Just if you want to Google a pissograph scroll, it'll help you out. A strong angel proclaim with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book. So here we have in the throne room and we're in the end times. And in the throne room, there's a scroll. And everybody that's ever died or been alive has the ability to walk into that room and open that scroll, except that there's not a single one of anybody who is worthy. And there's a problem in the throne room because that scroll is the redemptive scroll. It is the title deed back to the planet Earth that at one time God owns. But we gave dominion over to the enemy through sin, the Bible says in the book of Genesis. And this whole fight, this whole 6,000 year plan 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross and overcame the grave is yes for your salvation. Yes for the Holy Spirit. Yes for you to walk in that. But the reason why he wants to give his spirit out to all of his people is so that he can return back to this earth, find faith and redeem it. You may or may not know that when you get into the book of Revelation, chapter 20 through 22, you're going to realize something that you weren't taught in Sunday school, that heaven where you're going to go and live forever isn't, isn't up in the clouds somewhere in the universe above the planet. But it's called the New Jerusalem and it's coming back here. And Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign on this planet for at least a thousand years. We need to do a couple of things real quick. 
First of all, I need you this morning. I promise we're going to be in the Word of God and we're going to use plenty of Scripture. There's two ways that you get taught within the church or the body of Christ. One way is through theology. The other way is through revelation. The difference between revelation, not the book of revelation, but actual revelation and theology is revelation is where we take the word of God. We are not very big or very much fans of theology here. We are very much fans of revelation. When revelation, what you do is you get to know the author of the book, which is a, a great concept. The guy that wrote it, God, our father in heaven, the only visible image is his son, Jesus Christ. So we get to know him. And then we ask him for his Holy Spirit to help us open up the book that he gave us and give us revelation of what it means because it can be very confusing otherwise. Well, so revelation is diving into the word of God and trying to let everything out of the box. We use Hebrew. We use Greek. We use hermeneutics. Uh, we use eschatology. We use exegesis. All of these terms about how you read and put whatever we can use. We just want to dive in there and allow God to release whatever he wants to release out of it. And then we want to teach it, we want to preach it, and we want to learn it. Everybody say, out of the box. box. It is a beautiful place to live. (laughs) Theology is where you take some of the concepts that are a little bit more obvious in the Word of God, just grab one, grace, faith, atonement, whatever you want it to be, and you put it inside of a box, and then you put a real fancy label on the box. And then you teach everybody that if they're not just going to be saved, but they're going to be right with God, they have to understand the box that you've created. Or the box that you've chosen to believe in. And this box has labels and you can't work outside of this box. You're either Calvinist or you don't know God. You either believe in limited atonement or you don't understand atonement. See, we could go on and on with probably terms that you've never heard of. Some I've never heard of. I don't like being inside that box. Do you like being in the box? I like being in the box either. I want to be outside of the box. So what we try to do is bring revelation. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. So if you'll bear with me. The reason I'm telling you all that is because you may have a great theological background, whether you know it or not. What I want you to do is take everything that you think you know or that you've been taught, that little box, set it down beside your chair. We'll let you pick it up before you leave. And for the next however long this takes, just see if this revelation makes sense to you and see if it's backed up by the word of God or not, because you might hear something that you haven't heard before. The uh, New Jerusalem here on earth. Some of you may have never even heard that. That might sound sacrilegious because of what you've been taught. All you have to do, though, is go to the Bible, read Revelation chapter 20 through 22, and you're going to realize, how come nobody ever... That's what I realized when I really got into church for the first time. So my whole life, I'm waiting to go live up in the sky. And then somebody told me, actually, it's coming down here. And I was like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. How could that even be possible? And then they showed me the Word of God, and I was like, well, geez... Now, who am I supposed to believe, that preacher or? So anyway, here we are in the throne room. Now you're going to start learning. Some of you are going to start learning something that I know you haven't heard before and that may violate everything that you think that you know. But just bear with me and see what the word of God says. Are you ready this morning? Okay. we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 28. We're going to start in verse number 12. Ezekiel 28 and 12 says, Son of man, which is a title for Jesus Christ. And I realize this is the Old Testament, but it's prophetic. Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. How many of you remember when Daniel was praying? He had to pray and fast for 21 days because the answer to his prayer was blocked by a demon. A demon and an angel were fighting in the heavens as the angel Gabriel was trying to bring him his answer to his prayer. Who was he fighting? The prince of Persia. The Bible says the reason I want you to understand that 
is that demonic forces are called princes, principalities, and kings if they are a strong demon or a lead demon. So when he says, a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, we know right away either that's an actual man or that's the, de- the demon that's over that particular land or a demon in general. So let's see what it's talking about. And say unto him, thus says the Lord God, you seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Right away, it doesn't really sound like a man. Here's how we know for sure. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Who is the only man that's ever been in Eden that you know of? Adam, right? Because when he sinned, he got kicked out and there was no longer entrance into Eden, right? Okay, so we know we're not talking about a man unless we're talking about Adam. And we're not talking about Adam, so we must be talking about some strong demon who is perfect in beauty. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold, the workmanship of the tabarets and your pipes were prepared in you the day that you were created. It's shown you nine stones that cover this king's breastplate. Whenever stones cover a breastplate, what you have is a high priest figure in your sight. The high priest on the earth had 12 stones. This high priest only has nine. There is an amazing message in the three hidden stones, but that's not for today. Verse 14. You are the anointed cherub that covers. What is a cherub? Warrior angel. angel, And or a little baby angel that sells toilet paper. We're going to go with warrior angel. Not the Charmin cherub. Cherub that covers. And I have set you so. You are upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Who are we talking about? Lucifer. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of you with violence. You have sinned. Therefore, I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. Lucifer means son of the morning or bright one. I will cast you to the ground. I will lay you before kings that they may behold you, that you have defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore, will I bring forth a fire from the midst of you. It shall devour you, and I will bring you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all those that behold you. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished. You shall be a terror, and never shall you be any more. So we have found here a pretty intense description of Lucifer, but we have one problem. It's not down till the very end that he starts talking about how he'll be destroyed. In the beginning, he says, verse 12, you seal up the sum full of wisdom, perfect and beauty. Goes on to describe how beautiful and amazing he is. But he says in the beginning, verse number 13, you were found in the Garden of Eden. You were found in the Garden of Eden. Now, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve encountered Lucifer, did they find him in his beautiful angelic form? They did not. They found him in a fallen state. Stripped of his power, stripped of his beauty, stripped of his anointing in a serpentine form, which in the Hebrew is seraph, which is short for seraphim, which is another kind of angel. So you might mess with your theology about whether that was a boa constrictor or a fallen angelic seraphim that was around the throne of God. We can talk about that on Wednesday nights, which we will. Today, we're going to stick with the fact that we're in the Garden of Eden. Lucifer is in the Garden of Eden in his beautiful form. And it says that he's on the holy mountain of God. And he walks up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You know what stones of fire are in the Bible? 
It's when the angels, like in Isaiah, take a hot coal from off of the altar of incense and they come over to Isaiah to place it on his lips. And he says, woe is me, a man with unclean lips. The stones of fire are stones of worship. When you take a stone in the Bible and you set it on fire, it represents worship. So we have Lucifer in Eden walking up and down the stones of fire. It says his pipes and his tabarets were created within him. That's why you hear people say he was the praise and worship leader of the heavenly realm. He has the high priest covering. He is the beautiful cherub that covers. He's an amazing creature. Until that sin was found within him. Here's something you may or may not know. Isaiah chapter 14 records the fall of Satan. And when you combine that with what we read in Ezekiel, we see something very interesting. Verse number 12 of Isaiah 14 says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. Everybody say throne. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the, upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north. Here's the picture I want to paint for you. Once upon a time, the Lord your God. Did everybody take that box of theology and set it down for a second? Created everything. He spoke the universe into existence. He said, let there be light. And in 1965, our scientists discovered through the background radiant due to the Kobe project that in the universe, everything must have started, started with a huge explosion of light that they nicknamed the Big Bang because that's the only possible way it could have happened. Before then, they just said it always was. The Bible said, however, God said, let there be light. And when he said, let there be light, we're going to go to a scripture here at the end of our, our message where they come into the Garden of Gethsemane to grab Jesus. And he says in the book of John, who did you come here to get? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he turns around and says, I am he. And the power of his voice knocks everybody down. And they had to get back up. And then he said, who did you come to get? And they were probably like, Jesus. <laughs> and then he was like, well, that's me. Calm down a little bit. But when God said, let there be light, it wasn't like a light bulb. When God said, let there be light, there was an explosion of light. Whether that happened like they think it did in the Big Bang or not, we could get scientific and we could agree to disagree, whatever. But the point is, light. Even science has to admit, light exploded. It's the only way it could have happened. At that moment, the universe started expanding. A few years ago, they figured out that everything they taught you in public school was wrong. The universe is, it, the expansion's not slowing down and it's not going to collapse like a rubber band like you were taught. They figured out actually it's speeding up. So God said that, depending on your theology, 6,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 15 billion years ago, and it's still speeding up. It's a big deal. When he said that and he created all things, who was there first, the angels or men? Well, he had to turn around and say, let us create man in our image. And we know that the angels are the creative arm of God when he wants them to be. So the angels were there first. Where did the angels live? I don't know. But apparently, according to Ezekiel 28, combined with Isaiah 14, this one angel with covering stones and the amazing ability to worship had a throne in a garden called Eden. You ever wonder 
why when God created man and decided to kick Lucifer out of heaven, why did he kick him out right over Eden? And why did he have to, why did he land there? Why couldn't God have kicked him out in like Alabama or something? And somebody else could win a national title. Why, why didn't he, where there's so many different places, into the ocean, whatever. Why did he kick him out right into Eden? Well, let me offer you an idea. He didn't kick him out into Eden. He kicked him out of the club, so to speak. He stripped him of his power and authority. He wasn't standing up in heaven and got elbowed down onto earth off of the clouds. He already had a realm, apparently a throne, and he walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire in Eden. Now, when you have a throne, everybody say you have dominion. You have dominion. So here he had dominion, but sin was found in the midst of him. And that dominion, everything in the universe, everything that was ever created was sinless until Lucifer somehow got puffed up in his own pride, probably because there were angels walking up and down in the midst of those stones of fire, seeing those nine stones, hearing that beautiful voice. And he started thinking, man, they love me almost as much as they love him. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my throne and lift it up above the heavens. And God saw iniquity. God saw sin. And he took that badge and he stripped it and he kicked him out of the club, kicked him out of heaven and said, you have defiled my sanctuary. You have defiled my crown. Now sin has entered into the universe and I am not a God who, who lightly hands over my dominion. So I'm going to recreate beings in my image, Genesis chapter 1, day number 6, and I'm going to give them dominion and authority and we'll see what happens. And because you sinned in Eden, I'm creating them out of the ground in Eden. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Everybody say Game of Thrones. So remember, there was a throne in Eden. God's plan is not to redeem Pluto. That'd be cool because we kicked Pluto out of, the, out of the planetary deal there. Revolve in peace, Pluto. So it'd be cool if he did. But he didn't come to redeem Pluto or Neptune or Mars or anything else. His plan, this word that we have, is to redeem Earth. To redeem us, who he created and put on Earth. We understand that? So the throne was defiled on Earth. In Revelation chapter 5, we go into the throne room of God, which is set up in the heavens, but apparently is coming to earth, according to Revelation chapter 22. And in the throne room, there's a really cool thing happening. There is a piece of paper sealed with seven seals, and it is a deed, and it is written, and it has rules, and it's a covenant. You can do this, and I can do that. And at the end of the day, God has set it up so that he gets to win the, the title deed back. Are you with me? But one problem, nobody worthy to open up that scroll because Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. Everybody say dominion, dominion. over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, the cattle, all of the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Genesis chapter two, verse number eight. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward, by the way, in Eden. Hey, the garden wasn't Eden. The garden was placed in Eden. Eden already existed. Why did Eden already exist? Because that's where Lucifer was. That's where his throne was. That's where his covering was. That's where the stones of fire were. That's where the mountain of God was. The garden that he created, he could have put it anywhere on earth. And he put it in Eden. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. So then we know what happened from that place. In Eden, we had dominion. Man had dominion ever over the fish, over the, over the birds of the air, over everything that creeps, over the cattle. 
The Bible says all the earth. We didn't get to keep that dominion for very long. Because there was somebody else present in that garden. Somebody else that had authority in that garden because they grew up in that garden and they had dominion in that garden. And God said, if I'm going to win my dominion back, and if I'm going to overcome the sin that has now entered the universe, I'm going to have to defeat this one who formerly had the dominion. And that defeat is going to have to come through somebody's choice, not somebody's predestined, predestined will. Box of theology on the ground. So he creates man out of the dust of the earth, and he places man also in Eden. Then he takes a step back, and he says, game on. Already knowing, because the Bible told us that Jesus Christ was crucified for us before the foundations of the earth, exactly how it would play out. Which is maybe why he created Eve before Adam fell into temptation and ate the apple, not the apple, but the fruit. Could have been whatever, probably an e-trog figure that I said apple is definitely not an apple. Scratch up for your memory, that never happened. Edit that off the CD. No apples. The fruit that hung on the tree. So before he ate the fruit, God said, let me bring all these creatures. None of them were a good help meat. So he put Adam to sleep. He took one of his ribs. He created woman. Maybe as an example, God knew eventually Adam's going to fall to the temptation and he's going to eat. But I'd rather him not do it until she does it, because then he can do what she does in his sin. He can become sin to cover her sin. And I'm going to do something similar with my son who was already crucified before the foundation of the earth. Maybe. Maybe. So we're in the Garden of Eden. And we've decided instead of obeying God's one rule, we're going to break it. When we did that, we took the dominion that he gave us and we handed it over to Satan, who the Bible now calls the God of this world. Are we on the same page? Amen. Amen. There's a throne. There's a scroll. Redemption is available, but there's nobody worthy. You see, God allowed kings on the earth and they set up thrones in Israel and Judah in Jerusalem. But none of the kings that ever sat upon the throne were ever worthy. In fact, God didn't want to start with kings. He wanted to rule Israel himself. And they said, give us a king. And so he picked out for them or they picked out for themselves Saul, who was a head and shoulders above every other man. Really good looking, really tall. Basically Ben. Picked out Ben. Saul was the world's first crossfitter, guaranteed. So here we have Saul. Now, did Saul do a very good job? No, Saul didn't do a very good job. Saul fell into sin pretty quick. Saul fell into jealousy. Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. So God raised up the best king that he could possibly raise up, a ruddy little shepherd boy named David. And David sat on the throne and he did great for a little while. But then all of a sudden David got caught up in his own legend and decided that he wasn't going to go out to the war when the kings were supposed to go out and defend the land, that he was going to stay home and sit on the roof. Lo and behold, he saw Bathsheba bathing down below him. And we know what happened from there. David fell into adultery. David fell into a murderous situation. David had a son who is called the wisest man that ever lived before Christ, named Solomon. A lot of people think Solomon did very well. But if you read Solomon's story at the end, he had too many wives, too many stables, and too many false gods. He didn't do well either. Jeroboam, Josiah, go on and on and on. All the kings that ever reigned, even a few of them, that it was said that they never worshipped a false idol, they still had their faults. How do we know for sure? Because here we are in Revelation chapter 5. God is sitting upon his throne. He has written out the scroll of redemption. 
He is ready to buy back the earth. He is ready to fulfill that deed and that title. But we go into the throne room and John's having a vision. John, the beloved disciple, and he says, I can't find anybody that's worthy to walk into this throne room and take back the dominion. Abraham followed God. He's already dead, but he doesn't have the authority. Moses was the the mightiest man that ever walked the face of the earth, apparently, and he doesn't have the authority. King David had a heart after God's own heart, and he doesn't have the authority. He doesn't have the ability. Nobody has the ability. Because all have fallen short and all have fallen into sin. And then the book of Revelation, John starts to cry and the angel says, don't weep. There is one. Two thousand years ago. Three days ago. That one. Who was like us. Yet without sin died an unworthy death. The wages of sin is death. But this one had no sin. This Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. You know what the real problem is in Revelation chapter 5? Only a high priest could walk that far into the temple of God. Because the throne room is the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest was allowed into that room and only once a year. Well, the very first high priest that ever lived was Aaron, but he couldn't go in. Well, he actually could go in there. The problem, though, if Aaron walked into that throne room because he's the high priest and he grabbed that scroll, then he couldn't do anything because only a king has the authority to propose the will of that scroll or impose it upon the people. You cannot be born into the bloodline of the high priest and born into the bloodline of the king. It's impossible. But there's one who the book of Hebrews tells us is our great and final high priest that the Bible tells us is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. There's one who was dead. There was one who was buried for three days and there is only one man on the face of this earth that ever died, ever got buried and was resurrected by his own power from the grave, never sinned, but died and is alive again. And that one, that high priest, that king of kings had the authority and he walked into the throne room and he said, don't worry about it, Abraham. Don't worry about it, Aaron. Don't worry about it, Moses. I am like you, but I am without sin. I am a priest, but I am a king. I am the lion and I am the lamb. I am the alpha and I am the omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am man and I am God. I rule heaven and earth. So I'll take that scroll. I'll break those seals and I'll pay the price and we will win this earth back. Everybody say game Game. of thrones. You know, we hear so many times. We hear so many times Jesus Christ talk about and people talk about how when he dies, he's going to go and sit on the right hand of the father. He says that about himself and we try to figure out. Is he God or is he the son of God only or is God on the throne or is Jesus on the throne or what's going on exactly? And I'll have you know that the right hand of God is not God's right hand and Jesus sitting on the palm. But God is the king. Amen. And the king would always have a seat to the right of his throne called the seat of power. 
And that's where the prince would sit. That's where the heir would sit. Anybody heard the terms Prince of Peace, the heir of salvation, Jesus Christ, God for us? This may throw you a bit, but I want to tell you something that I believe the Bible teaches is the truth. God never lost his authority over the angels because he cast him out. And a third of the angels went with him. God's never lost his authority or been cast off his throne in the heavenly realm. He didn't come to redeem heaven. He came to redeem earth. But in order to redeem earth, he had another throne that he had to win back. See, God has never been dethroned. But God has the ability to replicate himself. And the way me and you would say that for a man is that the man had a son. But the way the Bible says that is that Jesus is a son, but he's also the only visible image of the invisible father. And Jesus said, all power in heaven and earth is given to me. And the Bible says the fullness of the Godhead slash Trinity was found in him bodily. So he is God. He is the only name given to men under heaven by which we can be saved. Acts chapter four, verse number 12. What you may or may not know is what Daniel chapter seven says. As I looked, thrones were placed. Everybody say thrones. Thrones. And the ancient of days took his seat. That's God the father. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court of his judgment and the books were open. And I saw in the night a vision and beheld with the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. Everybody say Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days. Forgive me. He came to the ancient of days and was prepared, presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Everybody say dominion, dominion. Glory, glory, kingdom, kingdom. Thrones. thrones. That all people, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7. I'm sorry, I should totally start in verse 9. Thrones. Game of thrones. You may or may not be aware at this point. God had a lot of different things that he could have done. A lot of different things that he could have done. When the dominion was lost upon the face of the earth. He could have sent Jesus in the form of the angel of the Lord and he could have swept aside his enemies. He could have won it back. He could have destroyed everything and recreated everything. What you're involved in here, if I may tell you the truth and you can see it from this point of view, is you're involved in the biggest game of chess that was ever played on the face of the earth. It is a game. And God had different moves, and different things he could have done. Now, let me tell you like this. When I say it's a game, that doesn't mean that it's absent of emotional involvement or reality. You could play a game on your PlayStation and be completely emotionally detached and not care about it at all. Understand that. But if you found out that inside that PlayStation were actual human beings you were controlling, you might want to set down your machine gun in Halo or whatever it is you're playing and pick up a Bible and start letting everybody inside that game call and say, no, hold, hold on a second, this is more real than we thought. Please don't kill each other. Please don't shoot each other. There's a better way. I didn't realize this was real. I know that sounds kind of corny, but is that not what we do? At some point, we're walking through the game of life and we realize for a second, oh my God, hold on, this is way more real than I thought. Then we pick up our Bibles and say, hey, listen, people, listen, stop, man. Don't hate each other. Don't hurt each other. Don't kill each other. Don't rape each other. Don't speak ill of each other. Don't do this to each other. 
It's more real than we ever thought. However, when I go out after church, I don't anymore, but when I used to and go play softball, that's also a game. But I do care if our pitcher gets hit in the face with a softball. I would care. Everything would stop. Nobody's thinking about Starbucks at that point. There's human emotion involved. There's anxiety involved. There's something real about it. So just because it's a game doesn't mean it's a game. You understand? And it's definitely not a game to me and you, even though it's sort of a game to God. And it's not a game that he's laughing at or that he thinks is funny. It's a game that he's involved in. My God, he gave his only begotten son. But the Bible says, instead of coming in the likeness of angels, he came in the likeness of Abraham. God had a plan. The angels sit higher than man, but they don't understand the nature of man. The angels walk in a spiritual realm that is amazing, but they don't understand the redemptive power of flesh and blood. They understand that men die because of sin, but they don't understand that I can create a man that can walk on the earth without sin. And if he dies, he has power over all the angels, all the heavens, all the earth, all the thrones, all the dominions, and we win. Everybody say game of thrones. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. Why did it make that distinction? Because if there's any dominion in heaven, Jesus won it. If there's any dominion that people have on earth, that's also his. And by the way, Satan that lives underneath the earth, you too. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What I want you to realize this Easter morning is that yes, he died. Yes, he was buried. And yes, he was resurrected. And that is enough. That's all you need in an Easter sermon to be excited about. But underneath the surface, if you pull out your shovel of revelation and throw away your tools of theology, you might find that just underneath that surface, as Proverbs chapter 25 told us, that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. And there was something a little bit more going on than just a man who was like us but without sin that died, was buried, and resurrected. There was also an underlying theme and a powerful thing that happened. You ever wonder why when Jesus died on the throne, all of a sudden there was an earthquake and the earth was made dark for a long period of time and everything shook and the temple was shaken and the veil was split in two and things started to fall apart. It wasn't just because one day you'd be forgiven of your sin. It was because on that day, death, hell and the grave were overcome. All dominions were done away with. All thrones have been handed over. No longer is there power in the temple. No longer is there power in the castle. No longer is there power in the White House. But as Jesus told Pontius Pilate on that faithful day when he said, I have the power to crucify you or let you go, he said, you actually have no power except what is given you from heaven. If my kingdom were on earth, my people wouldn't let me be crucified. They'd fight to the death. And because you've got power only from heaven, your sin is less than their sin. But I'm telling you the truth. If I didn't want to be here right now, I wouldn't. He says, no man can take my life. But I lay it down freely. If you haven't learned anything yet, let me throw one more thing at you before we go. I want to teach you a little bit of Hebrew. Is that okay? I want to show you something that God set up from the very beginning. I wish I had another 30 minutes to explain to you the power and the depth of the Hebrew language and how it was written from the very beginning, the oldest language on earth. And then when God speaks through that language, it's so amazing. How many of you know what Gethsemane means in Hebrew? Yosemite in Hebrew, the word means oil press. 
which is cool in and of itself because Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and that's where he prayed that prayer in agony before his crucifixion. When he said, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Are you ready? I promise you're going to learn something cool. Everybody still awake? Everybody hungry? Ready for lunch? All right. Forget about that for a second. The more you amen, the quicker I'll get through this and the quicker you can eat. Stop it. That makes me sad. Okay. Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane. He gets down on his hands and his knees and he prays earnestly. Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way. He understands what's about to happen. And yes, he is God, but he is also man. He cries out and he prays for a long time. In fact, the Bible says he prays until his sweat became great drops of blood. You know what that means? That means he was in extreme agony, extreme stress. That's scientifically possible. If you get so stressed out that your capillaries can literally burst on your forehead and out of your pores will come blood instead of sweat. So I don't want you to think this was any easy thing for him because he had foreknowledge of his resurrection. Foreknowledge of resurrection doesn't alleviate the pain of death that he didn't deserve. Now that's for me and you. Think about a man who literally loves deeply the people that are about to kill him. Agony. Father, if there's any way. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What did he tell them before they took the bread and the wine? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood given for the new covenant. There's a game happening here. There's a strategy. And it's a game of thrones. What I want to show you in the Hebrew is how that strategy was written long before Jesus was even born. This garden was always called Gethsemane. Now, yes, it means in Hebrew oil press, which can mean the Holy Spirit and anointing and being pressed out of Jesus. And we could preach a sermon on that. But Hebrew is such an amazing language because each letter has a symbol, a word picture attached to it. And each letter also has its own definition. And when you take the definitions of the letter versus the whole word, it tells an even deeper and different story. I want to show you what Gethsemane means. You see here on the right where my finger is. Here, look, I got a pointer. There's the English letters. What we're looking for is the G. You see the G up there? That is, uh, that is a gimel, or they pronounce it ga here for whatever reason. On this side is the modern Hebrew writing. Over here is called Paleo-Hebrew, how it would have looked in the very beginning. And it also shows you the symbolism for each thing. So the gimel, you see the G, means gather, walk, or carry. Everybody say carry. carry. In Gethsemane, the gimel is the first letter. The second letter is the tav. Flip to the next. The tav here is at the bottom. You see the T right there? Look at the symbol for the tav. It's always been two cross sticks, which make a cross. Everybody say, carry for gimel. Carry. Everybody say the sign, which can also mean covenant in Hebrew. And we have a cross here. So we have two letters, carry the sign, geth. The next one is the sheen. The sheen is right above the cross. The S, you see the S over here? Everybody say press. press. To carry the covenant, press. Gimel, Tav, Sheen, 
The next letter is the mem, which is up here at the, in the middle, the M. The symbol is water. Everybody say blood. And the last one is the noon, which is represented by the N right here, Gethsemane. And it means sun. Everybody say sun. So when you take the five Hebrew letters that spell the word Gethsemane, guess what it's always said? In order to carry forth the covenant of the two cross sticks, press the blood out of the sun. Jesus Christ walks into the garden of Gethsemane. Where it says in order to carry forth the covenant of the two cross sticks, press the blood out of the sun. He gets down on his hands and his knees. He's pressed with such anxiety that he starts to pray, but his sweat turns into blood. Did God know beforehand? Have the rules of this game already been written? You see, the thing is, the Bible also says the princes of this world didn't know really who Jesus was. If they did, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Remember, princes as in principalities. So what does that mean? That means we're playing this game of chess. In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, it says, Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Everybody say, he's in a garden. He's in a garden. So Lucifer thought, well, this man is trying to carry out the sin of the world. It's too much for him. He's doing a really good job, though, at some point, three and a half years in. I'm going to go ahead and raise up my people, and we're going to kill him. Quietly, later, the New Testament would say, if they would have known. They never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan understands he's playing chess. His best move, his secret weapon, his most powerful thing that he has to play with is death. So he can't figure Jesus out. I don't know how he's doing this. I don't know why he's doing this. I don't know what he thinks he's going to accomplish. So we're just going to skip fast forward, checkmate. But God, he saw that a long time ago. He was crucified before the foundations of the world. Lucifer didn't understand the power of flesh and blood. He didn't understand that when he walked into that garden that says the covenant will be carried forth in a sign of a cross when the blood gets pressed out of the sun. He didn't understand exactly what that meant. So as that blood got pressed and he entered into his death, he thought the game was over. But then the king stands up and says, no, 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 not checkmate. That was just check. And when you call out checkmate too loud in chess, you lose your next turn. So your turn's over. Your authority is gone. It wasn't checkmate. It was only check. I have one thing, one thing that can overcome death, hell, and the grave. One thing that is greater than it being dead and gone. That thing is called resurrection. And that only happens by the power of the blood. And with the great thing about something being resurrected is it can never be killed again. The Bible says that death entered into this world through one man. I'm sorry, make that sin and death. Enter into this world through one man. That man was Adam. How did that man allow sin into this world? Well, he disobeyed God inside of a garden and he ate the fruit that hung off of the tree. And when he ate the fruit that hung off of the tree, he got cast out of the garden into the dirt. And God said, no longer will it bring forth fruit. You'll work the ground by the sweat of your brow and it will only bring forth thorns and thistles. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of God. The reason for that is a whole other sermon. So just 1 Corinthians, he is the first fruits of God. In the book of Acts, it tells us that he, we know he hung on a cross, but in the book of Acts, it calls the cross the tree of Calvary. So what happened was in the beginning, God had one rule 
and they disobeyed God inside of a garden. They did their own will. And the fruit that hung off of the tree was what brought them down, cast them out, and only gave them thorns and thistles instead of the fruit. Thousands of years later, the second Adam, as the Bible calls him, the son of God, Jesus Christ, walks into a garden and says, not my will, but thy will be done. And what happens is he becomes the first fruits of God who hangs on Calvary's tree. And instead of the sweat of the ground, his sweat turns into blood, redeems that curse back. And instead of the thorns and thistles that were on us, he takes the thorns and the thistles on him. And the thing that Satan meant to bring you down, the fruit that hung on the tree is what God gave you to redeem you back. It started in a garden. It technically ended in a garden. And Jesus Christ did it for you. And he did it for me. And it's over. And he sits on the throne. And there's no more dominion for Satan. There's no more authority. There's no more game to be played. Now you just have to believe. Everybody say just. Believe. God is good. Is he not? He played a game of thrones and he won. His son died, but he's alive, the walking dead. Lucifer didn't know what to do. Now he still doesn't. So he's got to lie to you. He's got to tell you that you're not worthy. He's got to tell you that you're ugly. He's got to tell you that you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You've got too much sin. Nobody knows the real you. You've already messed up. It's a little bit too late. You're a little bit too old. You're a little bit too young. You're too fat. You're too skinny. You're too short. You're too tall. Don't listen to that noise. When that comes into your head, all you have to do is tell that voice. I could use a little self-improvement. We all could. But the authority and the dominion, it's my God that sits upon the throne. So you don't get to judge me that way. He said, I am good enough. He said, despite my shortcomings, he can use me. He says, despite how much I sin, he still loves me. So don't let that voice enter into your head. Jesus Christ didn't do everything he did in the garden, on the tree, with the fruit and the thorns and the thistles and the pressing and the blood for you to believe Satan. Amen? Amen. Can we believe God this morning? Can we love Jesus this morning? Are you thankful that he rose from the dead this morning? Are you glad to celebrate Easter? Stand up with us and let's worship this morning.